This is Cross Hope with Randy Snyder. Cross Hope is broadcast daily and shares five minutes of hope and encouragement from the Word of God. Our companion website is www.crosshope.org. Now with today's uplifting message, here's Randy. I want to begin with an interesting story told by a retired minister from Las Vegas. Whenever you say Las Vegas, I don't think of churches. I think of gambling casinos, but there was a church there. I mean, a number of churches. And Ron Flores was the past minister of Meadows Fellowship and tells a great story out of his own family. He had a number of sons. The youngest son was named Ronnie, who played professional baseball for 10 years, connected with the Houston Astros, I believe, is the team he played for three years, and then farm team, so he's a professional baseball player. But remember, he's the youngest son. And Ron said that his wife, Paula, would make the best French toast in the world. So the boys would line up and push each other and shove just to be first in line to get the French toast when it was ready. And Ron, the the dad, said, I thought it was a time to share a spiritual lesson with them. Ronnie was the youngest, and coincidentally, Randy was the oldest. And he said, boys, if Jesus were here today, he wouldn't mind being the last one to get the French toast, thinking that would humble the boys. And so Ronnie, the baseball player later on, said, Randy, you be Jesus today. You go last. I thought that was a quick response from a kid. You be Jesus, you go last. Who would you be Jesus for? That's the question. Would anybody in your life, in your family, your circle of influence, identify and look at you or me in such a way that they say, Jesus, that's what I see in you or me. We're continuing this series in Ephesians today, and I think we've got a powerful passage. And I want to tell you this, this is going to sound dramatic to some of you, but I really mean this. This is not pretending. There's a verse we're going to read today. I'm going to let you pick it out. That if you followed it and you're married, it can change your marriage. There's a verse, I'll let you pick it out. If you followed it and you're a parent, it could change the way you relate to your children. It could change the way a lot of things happen in your life. Just if you follow one verse out of six verses I'm going to read today from Ephesians 4. And I'll let you pick the verse, if you will, in your mind, and then we'll talk about it. Ephesians 4 is the text. We're picking it up at verse 1, about being united as a church. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm curious if any of you caught the verse that's, who who can say it that you think is the key verse? Somebody said it, I think. The second one. Let's read it together. Be completely humble and gentle. 
be patient, bearing with one another in love. You may not agree with me, but I really believe that if you practice verse 2, and I practice verse 2, as imperfect people, we all are, that it would make a change in your marriage and in your relationship with your children, with your brothers and sisters, your parents. Well, I want you to hear the rest of this message about a most important verse on crosshope.org. That's crosshope.org. As the years go by, fewer and fewer people remember a television show called Andy Griffith. Anybody remember Andy Griffith? We had a man in the church I served in Texas who not only was his favorite show, he would reenact favorite scenes from Andy Griffith, and he would be the voice of Don Knotts. He'd be the voice of Andy, Otis, you name it, Aunt B, it didn't matter. He could do them all. And he loved to tell this one, where, and I remember the scene. It's evening, it's dark, and Andy and Barney are leaning in chairs on the wall of the sheriff's office on the outside. And it was raining. No, it wasn't raining, but it is now. And Andy says to Barney, Barney, what are you going to do tonight? And Barney said, well, I'm going to go home. I'm going to change. I'm going to go over to Thelma Luz. We're going to make a pan of cashew fudge. And we're going to watch that George Raft movie on TV. And then he repeats it and said, yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home, change, go over to Thelma Luz, make a pan of cashew fudge, and watch that George Raft movie on TV. And some of you are ahead of me. You know what he did. He repeated it three or four times, that what he was going to do. And then he asked Andy, what are you going to do? And Andy said, I think I'm going to go down to the church. They're having a meeting tonight voting on the color of choir ropes. He said, I reckon they'll be fighting about it all night. I reckon they'll be fighting about it all night. I laughed, you laugh, but you know there's a sadness to that. Speaking of churches as places where people fight all night. And there's a sadness to that, but there's also a real reality to that. And Paul, the apostle, speaks to the church at Ephesus and talks to them about being united together. I want to talk about those four things. Be completely humble. Humility is something we seek, but we never claim it. Listen to that again. Humility is something we seek, but we never claim humility. I hope you never get to the place in your life or that I do and say, folks, I've arrived. I'm humble. I'm just a humble man. I can't help it. That doesn't happen that way. We don't claim humility, but we seek it. Humility is not demanding our own way. And a humble man or a humble woman, get this, is a person who knows himself or herself. They know. They know the sin in their life. They know what's happened in their life. They know the times they've lost it. They know the hostility they feel toward other people. They know the times they wanted to tell somebody off and did or didn't. And so humility is something we seek, but it's not something we claim. And then being humble leads to being gentle. Gentle is another word for meekness. And people think, well, does that mean weakness? No. It's power under control. Gentleness is power or strength under control. Have you ever seen a family that has two dogs, a huge dog and then a little chihuahua? 
and the little dog is constantly biting and snapping at the big dog, and the big dog just lays there, bored to death, like, get away, but never does anything. Never attacks the little dog. That's gentleness or meekness. I hope that you can be a person who's known for meekness, power under control. Let me tell you this, both humility and gentleness, get this, are gifts of God. You don't take a course in humility and become a humble man or woman. You don't take a course in gentleness or meekness and become gentle or meek overnight. It's something that's given by the Spirit of the living God in your life and in my life. I'm going to have some fun with the third one. Humble, gentle, be patient. Be patient. That's easier said than done. Some of you are married to an impatient person. Some of you grew up in a home where dad was impatient, mom was impatient, had no patience at all for anything. And so you have that issue of impatience in your life. I want to tell you a funny story about patience that's supposedly a true story. comes out of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. A teacher was helping a kindergarten student put on his cowboy boots. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots didn't want to go on. And by the time they got the second boot on, she'd worked up a sweat. She almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. <laughs> she looked, and sure enough, they were. And it gets worse from there. It wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them back on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on. This time on the right feet, he then announced. And then he said, those aren't my boots. <laughs> <coughs> she bit her tongue rather than get right in his face to scream, why didn't you say so? Once again, she struggled to help him pull off the boots. No sooner had they gotten the boots off when he said, those are my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them. Now she didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but she mustered up the strength and the courage to wrestle the boots back on his feet again. Keep counting. There's more. <laughs> Helping him into his coat, she said, now where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them into the toes of the boots. <coughs> would you agree that it would take patience to be a teacher in that class? Several people commenting, as I read that story, if I'm a teacher, I would want to scream. But patience means we press on. And patience is a godly character that belongs to people who are under the authority and lordship of Christ. That's the interesting thing is. Fact that is, you and I can be patient as a gift of the Spirit of God. We are to be completely humble, completely gentle, be patient in bearing with one another in love. Paul Cedar grew up in an evangelical church, I think called the E.V. Free Church. If you've ever heard Chuck Swindoll on the radio, that's an E.V. Free Church. In fact, I think Paul Cedar would grow up to become the leader, president of the E.V. Free Church. He tells about a story out of his childhood that's so touching. He was a little boy, and he was in a congregational meeting at his church, home church. He was seven, eight, nine years of age. And the people were debating in the congregational meeting 
over what color shingles to put on the roof. They were having new shingles put on. And the building committee had decided on the color red. One man stood up very dramatically, who evidently gave a lot of money to the church, and here's what he said. If you people put red shingles on the roof of this church, I'm going to walk out the door and I will never come back. You know what Paul Cedar said he did as a boy? He started weeping. He just bowed his head in church as a seven, eight, nine-year-old and started weeping because he was devastated by the, the hostility that he sensed. Even as a child, he could pick up on it. Well, I know tomorrow's Thanksgiving, but if possible, I'd like for you to listen to part four, either live or listen to it on our website, crossope.org. That's crossope.org. Then he goes on to talk about the things that cause disunity, that cause conflicts. He talks about single-issue people. That's an interesting term. Do you have any single-issue people in your family? It's all they talk about, one issue. It's a brother, sister, son or daughter, car, house. If there's some issue that that's all they talk about, and they cause conflict. He said there are divisive people who have a gift for dividing people. A gift. Do you know anyone who's got the gift of dividing people? Maybe you do. Then he talked about angry people. People who were mad about something from their childhood, from a previous marriage, a previous relationship. And that anger comes out at other times in their life. And it's expressed about different things, but it's the anger that goes way back. Be careful to analyze the anger that's in your life. Do you have anger toward people today that's connected to something that happened yesterday, so to speak, last year, five years ago? And then the last thing he mentions, why there's what a cause of conflict is, power control, trying to maintain power over other people. There was a church in Detroit years ago when 3,000 was a big church. A lot of churches have 3,000 people now. The minister said, we went through two years of peace in the church. And I remember wondering, what could possibly make that church who had a lot of conflict and a lot of problems go through two years of peace? You know what it was? Two little boys in the church who were dying of leukemia. And he said, every week we'd pray, and every Sunday night when we had Sunday night service, like people remember from years ago, we would get on our knees on, at Sunday night church and pray for the two boys. We would take food over to their families. We would take clothes to the families. Everything in the church was focused on the two little boys who were dying of leukemia. And the minister said, once they passed, they died. The conflict all came back, and people were struggling with conflict, all because there wasn't that focal point of the boys. Before I close with a story that sums this all up, I want to read verse 4 again. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. What's the magic word there? One. When we're a part of a church, we're part of one body. Isn't it amazing the sun just came out after the rain? That's great. 
one body and one faith, one Lord. And then he uses the word one over and over again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what Paul is saying, there's one body, folks. You're a part of one body. Not a multiplicity of groups or bodies. It's a powerful message to you and me. And I want to read verse 1 that I sort of disregarded. Let's bring up verse 1 again. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I want to tell you something that I've never said before. But the Lord notices how you react with other people in your family. Did you know that? And it does make a difference to the Lord. He notices the way we relate to people. And because this is important, you need to go home with this. The way that you relate to other people reflects your relationship to God the Father through the Son. Let me say that again. Your relationship and your relating to other people relates to your relationship with God the Father. Some of you know who Tim Keller is from New York City. He's a minister in New York City. It's it's what I would call a modern church in a modern era community in New York City, but a Bible-believing church. Tim Keller says it's quite common when I see a new person Here's what he says. How is it that you came to the church today? It's a normal question. What brought you here to our church today? And he wasn't prepared for this woman's response. She worked for a company in Manhattan. And not long after starting there, she made a big mistake. It was so big, she thought it would cost her her job. But her boss went into his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. Do you get what happened? This lady that started with the company makes a big mistake. The company loses a lot of money. And her boss goes to his boss and say, I take responsibility for what she did. And here she made an interesting comment. She went to him and thanked him. She said that often she had seen supervisors take credit for what other people did, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something that she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. Why would you do that? And he didn't say. He kind of deflected, and he he just hem-hawed around. Why did you do that? And finally, he said, all right, I'm going to tell you why I did it. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I believe in the gospel of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And he said, I believe that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for like 30 seconds and finally said, where do you go to church? Where do you go to church? And she showed up. Let me ask you this question. It's pretty personal. But have you ever demonstrated what Christ has done for you in the life of someone else? Most of us haven't, and I'm including me. Have you ever done anything that manifested and demonstrated what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross in the life of someone else? I was thinking about unity, and here's what I wrote down. I want you to to write this down, those of you that take notes. Unity is a gift of the Spirit of God. We don't create it. We receive it and we maintain it. We'll read it again. 
Unity is a gift of the Spirit of God. We don't create it. We simply receive it and maintain it. God is the one who gives it. Now I'm going to go a step further. That's true in your home. If you've got unity in your home, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. Maintain it. Maintain it. Bless it by what you invest in terms of time, talent, and treasure. And put your faith in the one who gives unity. I've never seen a book that says 10 ways to have unity in a church, 10 ways to have unity in a family or a company. Unity is a gift, and it happens through individual people. And that's why, as a part of the body of Christ, we matter. We're part of the unity factor or the disunity factor. Which one do you choose to be a part of? I choose to be a part of the unity. I want to read the whole passage again especially verse 2, which could speak to your marriage, your family today. Let's follow with me as I read. As a prisoner for the Lord, he was in prison. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You've been listening to Cross Hope with Randy Snyder. For more information about this ministry or to re-listen to any message heard on this broadcast, go to our website at crosshope.org. Be sure to join us at this same time each weekday or listen at www.crosshope.org. Cross Hope is listener-supported and is produced by Cross Hope Ministries, Incorporated.